Good morning. Today is the fourth Sunday in Advent. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. I am so blessed and grateful to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because of the miracles that have occurred in our lives. I had surgery two days ago for the removal of a brain tumor. And I'm here two days later, almost completely healed. And I thank my Savior for that. And I thank for all my family in this church and around for all the blessings, for all the prayers, and because God is so good that I don't feel here. There is too much of him. And I want to share with everybody because the blessings are from the Lord and I want to share them with you guys. Thank you very much. And God bless you. Right, sticks. Yeah. Okay, so stay there for a minute because I want to, if you turn that off, or unless some, you guys were going to share too? You're welcome to. Marion, please, please. Sorry. I really want to thank everybody that was praying for Pepe. It's amazing to me. It's a miracle that uh, Jennifer come over here. <laughs> what are you doing over there? <laughs> that. Um, on Thursday, he had brain surgery, and, and this is Sunday, and he's standing right here in front of us. Uh, the prayers need to continue. He, uh, his vision is not restored, um, and he's a little bit disoriented. So I want my Pepe back exactly the way that he was before. I thank my children that came. I know the, this one <laughs> usually doesn't, but for the love of that. She's here today, and I thank God that all our family, including Jennifer, that is part of our family, is here. Uh, please keep praying for the restoration of his vision. I just want to say something that Father Larry told me over the phone, <laughs> called the hospital, and said, Miriam, the last word is not what the doctor said. It's not what... All the people said, there's no other reports of even science said. The last word is what the Lord Jesus Christ said. So I'm, I am trusting that he says something different, that Pepe can be completely restored. Thank you, Lord. All right, so I want to remind you, last week we prayed for them because his vision, since before the India trip, was going down, and we, they'd been looking at it as an eye problem. Well, one of the nurses in the congregation said to him when he was going back, hey, that sounds like a neurological problem. So they left. He wasn't feeling well anyway, but they left, went to an emergency room after church last Sunday or while we were in church. We didn't know this had happened. Went and got a CAT scan of, or MRI, a CAT scan. And they're like, oh my goodness, there's a brain tumor or a brain mass. So while we were having church, they were rushing him to the, the ambulance from the urgent care center. Or, or, yeah, maybe they're getting exactly right, but, but to Shans. And then they had to wait a few days for the blood thinner uh, most of you know in terms of the prayer chain, but I mean, it was as a major, went from having a problem with it. During that time, his eyes got worse as the tumor or mass, I'm not sure the right word, but as it was growing. 
Um, and so uh, we're praying now that the tumor, I mean, praise the Lord, it all got out. And I mean, we saw him at noon or right after the surgeon, he was with it and all that. I mean, with it is a relative term, Pepe. Uh, I mean, just, I mean, I would have never thought, uh, he looked so good after that surgery, you would have thought nothing even happened. I mean, it was an amazing thing. Of course, his hat's on because in the back of his head, there's bandages and all that where the surgery was. But the point is, this is a tremendous grace of God in light of that, what was going on, that they found it and, and that he's here and all that. But uh, we're not done. So Lord, we pray for Pepe, Lord. And Lord, we just love him. And we pray, Lord, that you would heal. Well, I don't know if it's the optic nerve or whatever, the mechanisms in the body, but Lord, whatever it is, Lord, you're, you are the Lord. And so, Lord, we speak resurrection power. Lord, whatever uh, suffered injury or loss or whatever it was, uh, it's not too big for you. So, Lord Jesus, we pray for this healing and we thank you in advance for your visitation and the back of his brain or wherever he needs it to restore these eyes. And we thank you in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Yep, love you guys. Okay, some people just interrupt you. What are you going to do? All right, so, I mean, what an amazing week it was. And anyway, it's, we're very, very grateful. Okay, this morning, the gospel was in... Uh, was taken from, I need this for the psalm at the end, uh, was taken from John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, we have this important testimony of John the Baptist. Um, you can pass, well, there's not that many, okay. Um, so, the gospel writer of John is not John the Baptist. So, we gotta, when I say John, i got to make sure I'm being clear about John who wrote the book of John, versus John the Baptist, who the text is about this morning. And uh, this morning is a morning of longing and expectation. Um, it, it's a morning of recognizing that things are not the way they're supposed to be, and yet the Lord's presence and power is available to us uh, by his spirit. And uh, the purpose, if you know, I don't sit down and write, you know, they teach you in your seminary, you know, write the purpose, write this. I don't do all that stuff. But, but I can tell you, if there's a purpose this morning, it's to stir up your heart too long for things bigger and better and more than what we could possibly dare to act within the human system of which we live in. Uh, that we're asking, and the longing of the church this morning uh, is with the historic church that's long for revival, is long for the gospel to be preached in power. The gospel is preached all over the place, but there's little power. There's Christians all over the place, but there's little holiness. There's needs and addictions, and you know, after the Civil War, some of you know, if you read uh, Fundamentalism by the guy that was at Notre Dame and then Duke, I can't think of it, Marston, uh, I believe his name is George Marston. If you read his book, uh, he goes back and they recount how many people were addicted to cocaine after the Civil War. 
and they talk about how the revivals came through and people were complete. You couldn't find someone. Uh, as the Second Great Awakening was, God was visiting this country uh, as he has in other countries. But I mean, addictions and pro- I mean, unbelievable power of God has come through uh, in the past in this world uh, and certainly in our nation. And we certainly are in need of far more than what we know at this point. Meaning, uh, I've seen things in India that I, I don't see here, not in the same way. I mean, there's a longing. And so when the church says, raise up thy power, O Lord, and come amongst us, I mean, it is a longing. And some people think, we have some that, you know, hopefully not here, but there are some people that think because they're in the Episcopal church, kind of snobby or Anglican snobby kind of people, whatever, and think they're better and think, oh, when you pray about healing or deliverance or, or preaching the gospel, that's for the evangelicals or this or that, and we're kind of above that, and, and, and we're sort of proper and all that. Let me tell you something. The greatest revivals in the Western world happened in the Anglican church. Remember that when Wesley and them preached, they had to wait until people who would come up in the trees uh, they had to wait till they get out because they knew when they began to preach, the Holy Spirit would come and the people wouldn't be able to hold on. They would fall out of the trees. Imagine, I would love it to say, hey, everyone, you got to sit back. Don't be too, sit too forward or you might bang your head on the floor. Okay, the Anglican church as the historic church, I, I mean, some, you know, in the days of Spurgeon and Moody, when Moody went to England, there was never the crowds that happened in the east end of Lung, London in the Anglican revivals. Uh, in the middle to late uh, 19th century. This is not something that the Baptist zone or something uh, that is uh, for the Pentecostals. Uh, the gospel is for everybody, and the Anglican church, through and through, longs, and in the most important day, leading into Christmas of this high feast that we celebrate Jesus' first coming, we long for Jesus to manifest himself by his presence and come among us by his spirit. And that's as Anglican or Episcopal as any you can imagine. There's no Pentecostal that is more central in their teaching than it is in the Anglican church. So this morning will sort of agitate you, I hope. I'm good at that. I always say my gift is to poke you in the eye, I hope. I mean, we have to come with unreasonable expectations when we come to worship. If we're not expecting more than what we can do, we're wasting our time. It's not worship. If we come here thinking that all that's going to play, we're going to bide our time, uh, our husband will be happy, our wife will be happy, our mother will be happy, our dad will be happy, whatever, and, and then we bide our time and we go get to eat. What a wait. That's not worship. Worship is coming for the living God with an expectation that we might please him as we acknowledge our weaknesses and our sins and we preach his gospel and his grace. We come longing for heaven's answer for the presence and power of Jesus manifest by his spirit. To long for anything less is to be cowardly. It comes from generations of people that didn't see the power and kind of gave up and said, well, we'll just do business as usual. We, won't, we, we don't want to be disappointed. I would rather be disappointed for a lifetime. Longing for what God's word promises Than just to lower my expectations and think what we're looking for is business as usual. We have a lost world that's dependent upon the church. 
too long. Too long for Jesus to manifest himself. Until he comes back, that he would manifest himself by his spirit. Now, in John chapter 1, we had this situation where the gospel writer apparently had a problem, and that was when he was writing his gospel after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension. As he's writing it, there were still pockets of people who had followed the teaching of John the Baptist. And remember, John the Baptist had the first part. Uh, his, his part of the, of, of the preparation as a forerunner was to preach God's holiness and our great need. Uh, and to call people to repent of their sins as a means of preparation so that when they heard the gracious invitation of the gospel, that there is forgiveness through the life, death, uh, burial, resurrection, that, that, that people be ready for it because they'd come with a broken heart that recognizes that what God requires is not who we are. But God has provided it in his son, what we need, his righteousness, his grace. So there's this incredible thing that's going on. And so the gospel writer is writing and reminding us and reminding in the early church those people that were still thinking in competition that, uh, you know, that John the Baptist, remember in Acts 19, the people said, we've been baptized into John's baptism. We didn't even know there was another one. And so John is making clear in this gospel in the first chapter, particularly the testimony of John that Jesus is greater. And that there's no more need to pay attention to John, but now it's time to pay attention to Jesus. So John opens up, and we're going to look uh, Christmas Eve on John 1.1 and, and some of the questions that John, the gospel writer, wants us to know about Jesus. But for this morning, there's the witness or the testimony of John the Baptist. Now, there's a couple of things you need to know. First of all, in the text, it says, when the Jews... Now, I, I, I think in our church, we know that technically speaking, Jews would be the tribe of Judah, or then it became in history to be known as the southern tribes, and it would be connected with the southern part of Israel where the tribe of Judah was dominant. But by the Babylonian captivity, uh, the word Jew became, like Israel, a word that expressed all the people of ancient Israel. Now, but in the gospel this morning, everyone's Jewish. There's nobody in the story that's not Jewish. So it is used also at times to refer technically to people that were sent from the Sanhedrin and explicitly also by the Pharisees. I say that because it would be terrible if, as sometimes of history, Christianity uh, you know, is, doesn't have a perfect record. And at times, people have read these things and misunderstood and sort of been antagonistic or anti-Semitic. That's the last thing that you could get from a proper reading of the Gospel of John. Right? It's, it's a Jewish gospel. I mean, it's all about uh, what God has promised in the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. All right? So when we say the Jews here, in this text, it's referring to specifically people in religious leadership in the days of Jesus, specifically to people sent from the Sanhedrin and Pharisees. All right? So that's one of the backdrops. There's a couple other quick backdrops that you need to know. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it, there's a promise that before the great and dreadful day of the judgment and the return of the Messiah, there is one who's going to be a forerunner, Elijah the prophet. Now, some people thought that that meant that Elijah, who had been taken up in the chariots and did not die a natural death, that he was going to come back. 
So this morning in this text, there is this question, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah reincarnate? That's Hinduism, but I'm just saying, you know, are, are, did, did somehow Elijah who left and never died, did he somehow, are, are you him? All right, and the other question is there in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 18, uh, in those two verses, Moses promises that at the end of the ages, there's going to be a teacher. He's really referring to Jesus uh, in that, but you wouldn't know that until you look back. But the point is, the Pharisees are asking these people. There are priests who worked in the sacrificial system, and there were Levites, people who were basically policemen, temple policemen. And they were sent way out in the middle of no place, in a place called Bethabar. There's a Bethany right by Jerusalem, but that's not where John the Baptist was. He was way out across into what now would be called the Transjordan, across Jordan, which today would be the country of Jordan. And he was at the very place in the wilderness where there was nothing. But it was the place where Israel crossed over by, with the leadership of Joshua into the promised land. And so, of course, the one who was preaching the Messiah's coming and then the repentance of sins and, and to be baptized as an act of contrition and hopefulness that God's goodness and gospel would come, that he would be doing his ministry at the very place where ancient Israel had crossed over into the promised land because he was preaching a gospel that would allow them to cross over spiritually into eternal life in Christ. So it's very important that he's at Bethabara or Bethany, the one across Jordan in that place. Now, verse 19, here we go. Now this is the testimony of John the Baptist, all right, and the witness. Testimony is witness, all right? This is the testimony of John. When the Jews, again, referring to Pharisees, not in any way anti-Semitic or something, but when the Jews sent priests and Levites, people involved in the sacrificial system and people who were temple policemen from jerusalem to ask him who are you now there had been people who claimed to be the messiah and there were all these prophecies so they never knew for sure they're thinking man this guy is really something people are going in the middle of nowhere there's something in the air where people are sensing they have a great need and and he's baptizing these people and and what's going on and and, and of course they were threatened because they were more interested in religious control and their aggrandizement than they were in God in the scriptures. Not all the Jews, just, but there was a group of Jews who would rather crucify Jesus than to get on board in his kingdom and life. So they asked him. Now they're asking him a legal question. It's kind of like a deposition. So it's not in a courtroom, but they're asking him. And the Bible gives us, John the Gospel gives us two words that are rooms, words from the courtroom. And, and he gives us a triple negative, meaning in Greek, John could not any more clearly say, I am not the Messiah than this. And it's an awkward expression in English because it's not the way we do things. But he gives us triple negative, and this is what he says. So who are you? What they were really saying is, are you the Messiah? Are you claiming to be the Messiah? And in the strongest, most emphatic terms, John the Baptist says this. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christos. I am not the Messiah. Okay, Christos in Greek is Messiah. I'm not the anointed one. That's someone else. Then they ask him, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the one that Malachi 4 or 5? Are you, you that one? Because you dress like him. You're weird like him. You're eating locusts and honey. Half of that ain't bad. He's kind of weird. He was really weird, quite frankly. A lot of godly people are weird. I've noticed that. Not everyone is normal like me. I, just, 
That's what threw me off those Pentecostals. Some of them were weird. And you're like, man, they really know Jesus. And wow. I think most people that get a glimpse of the life to come in heaven and really know God, they, they, they do get weird. The, the problem is we don't want people trying to be weird. And some people just try to be weird, try to look like these people instead of playing their own game, staying in their lane, and, uh, and going from there. Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. See, it's all about him, right? Are you the prophet, the one from Deuteronomy 18? No, I'm, I'm not. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Now, this is the key for all ministers. I mean, I can say, well, I went to Wheaton College. I went to Reform Seminary. I did a PhD at Oxford. I can say all those things. John said, uh, all that stuff is BS. Forgive me for saying that, but no. John says, what matters about me is the message. I am the voice. He quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the pathway for the Lord. In the ancient world, when a king was coming or an important general was coming, they would go out and they would fix the potholes. You know, maybe no one wants to fix the common roads. Because who, you know, whose job is it? But when something important is coming, uh, you know, the king is coming, then what happens? You, you, you fix the potholes, you get the rocks that fell on the road that everyone's just been going around, etc. No, you have to make the paths straight for the king. Now, when Isaiah says this, and when you see the making the crooked way straight, making the path straight, that's referring to the moral change of holiness. All right? It's talking about, it's, it's a metaphor for, for a holy life in preparation. He says, I'm the one who has been set as a forerunner to, to preach and prepare the way. And the way to prepare is to say, we are really broken and needy. We're sinners, and we really need a Savior. It is the acknowledgement of our weakness and our sins that prepares us to receive the gospel, that Jesus has been righteous on our behalf. And he will change us and transform us as we receive the forgiveness of sins and we begin life with him. He, he will make us more and more like himself and we will live as God's people, a light in our generation. And that's what John the Baptist said. That's what, don't pay attention to me. He had already said, he must increase and I must decrease. So John says, he said, I am the voice, verse 23, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, shouting out, make straight the way of the Lord. See, if God doesn't change, it won't happen, but people have to turn in repentance to be ready to receive. You, you see, you can miss it. Did you know that? We could come this morning and not have the same spiritual experience as other people. The way you come in worship has a whole lot to do with what you get out of worship. Oh, you don't have to raise your hands or not. Although I think it would be a good experiment for some of us. I mean, I was raised Baptist. You never met a person more awkward than I was. I mean, I think I've told you that when I went to Oxford and they were doing the priest training and you, you had to put your hands out, I, I, I kept my elbows in because I sort of said, well, I don't want people to think I'm Pentecostal. <laughs> like that was a disease. <laughs> So I kept my elbows in. That was, I was like this, like penguin hands when the guy thinks he's going to get hit in football, you know? So I'm holding them in. You know, some of you, it would be great if you experimented. Experiment if you can. Now, I can't. My stomach's too big to get on those little kneelers. Get one in the past. Experiment and notice that your physical posture makes a difference. Experiment some. Try three or four weeks in a row lifting your hands and just see. I found that it made a difference. 
that there was some kind of freedom. When I put my body in a position of worship, that's how Jesus prayed, the people prayed. When I put my body in those, it seemed that something happened and it helped me. But you don't have to. I don't think you're any better if you do it or you don't do it. But I'd say you might as well experiment because no one cares here. No one's going to look down on you one way or the other. But you ought to maybe try it. See what happens. I mean, that's how wild and crazy we are. You can lift up your hands if you want to. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. 24. Now, those who were sent from the Pharisees. Remember, the Jews, those special type. Now, it's being, he's saying in the same way. Those that were sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, If you're not the Messiah, and you're not Elijah, and you're not the prophet, who do you think you are baptizing people? Because the suspicion was he was telling Israelites or Jews that they had to be baptized like they were just as bad as the Gentiles. And that was very offensive. And let me tell you something. The Gentiles were really, really bad. Did you know that? They were really, really bad. It's easy to see why Jews would have thought, we ain't like them, because they weren't. The worst Jews were better than the best, almost, of all the Gentiles. I mean, they were just horrible idolaters, and we can go into all that, but I mean, it, they were, the Jews were, in their worst day, far better than the Gentiles. And they believed that every Jew was going to, the common belief at the time of Jesus was that every Jew was going to go to heaven, and the best of Gentiles, that Abraham was going to stop them. The way we talk about St. Peter jokes, they understood Abraham was going to be there and make sure that all the Jews got in and those horrible idolater Gentiles, no one snuck in. That was the popular conception of Jesus' day. So, why then do you, why would you baptize Jews? They don't need it. That was part of the question. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christos, the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, and here's the key, this is why, I mean, the fourth Sunday, in Ad, you cannot have a bigger start to the Christian year. This Sunday and this teaching is the revelation of the whole part of Jesus. I mean, this is so big. He says, I baptize with water. Just like saying this morning, uh, you know, we put wine and, and, uh, and hose up on the altar, and, and, and we ba I baptize people, and I bless people. And, but the truth of the matter is, if Jesus doesn't show up, not much is going to happen. Less than much. People could actually be worse off than when they came. If they came with expectation, nothing happens. John the Baptist says, no, no, you don't understand. It's all about the mes message. It's not about me. You're, you're misunderstanding this. I baptize with water. That's all I can do. That's the only game I've got. But there is one here that stands amongst you whom you do not know. Now, he had already told them in verse 15 and in verse 10 and 11, the same chapter. He had told them that this is the one. He told them at the baptism. I mean, he, they had, he, he had told people that it was Jesus and not him before this. But they rejected Jesus. And the Bible says in the first chapter that he came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. He didn't fit the popular conception of what they wanted. They didn't want a holy man that wanted to change them. They wanted someone to deal with the Romans. We would have been the exact same way. 
I baptize with water. But there stands one among you. Now, why does the church have us focus on this? Because the church is saying in the same way. Many of us, we've been introduced to Jesus since we were little kids. But we haven't really received him. What a tragedy to be baptized in the name of Jesus, be confirmed, but haven't gone forward or whatever it is that you did. And to miss him. Now in that day, Jesus was standing there physically in the crowd. He says, but there's one here. And, and he says, in the Midrashes and, and uh, the Jewish teaching, a Jewish slave could not be compelled to take the sandal off. It was considered so gunky and nasty and dirty, the feet and everything, that a Jewish slave could not be compelled to, ta- compelled to take the sandal off of another Jew, even a slave. He said, but there's one here. I baptize with water, but there's one here. And he's so incredible that I'm not worthy. And they thought John the Baptist was big stuff. He said, but I'm not even worthy. I'm under a slave. I'm not worthy to even do it. I would do it, but I'm not even worthy to do it. That's how special this Jesus is. So the church is setting us up on this fourth Sunday Avenue to be thinking about, see, it's, it's the slow burn. You know, some food's like that. They say it's spicy, it doesn't seem spicy, and all of a sudden, it kind of catches you. The church has a saying, oh, how could those people miss that Jesus was right there? The church is saying to us, how could we miss that the presence of Jesus is with us this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit? How could we go year after year of not longing for more than the dribs and drabs of what we've seen? How could we accommodate our expectations in such a low place? How could we read about things that are happening in the mission field or things that have happened in church history and not absolutely long and say nothing less but the presence and power of God that when the gospel is preached, people are weeping out and say, i got to know the Savior. When people are sick and people are dying and people are in bondage to all kinds of sins and and they can't change themselves. I I mean, we're supposed to be longing because we know Jesus can do it. This morning, we baptize with water, we say the words, we're going to say beautiful prayers over the wine and over the body, all fantastic, theologically accurate, everything. But if you don't come longing for the Savior, if you don't come longing to be touched by the King of kings and the Lord of lords, if you don't come longing that the deepest, darkest place of you will be touched with the freedom and forgiveness and cleansing of Jesus, then you're missing the whole point. Because the problem isn't that Jesus isn't here. The problem is the expectation with which we come. Jesus was right there, but their expectation was he would look different. And they missed him. The church is reminding us that we can be around the trappings of Christianity for all of our lives and we can miss them. We can be around other holy people. I mean, John was there, John the Baptist. Jesus was there. There was holy people there. And yet the crowd missed him. This morning, 
the most important thing that could happen this morning is that you would open your heart to long for the Savior. My hunch is that most of us know him, but we know him a little. And he wants us to know him and his love and his power that we could be holy people. This world desperately needs people that know Jesus and are fully surrendered to him. Our neighbors, our families, we, we, need, we need marriages, we, we need parents, we, we need people in the market, we need people who are so like Jesus. Who say, I'm not satisfied knowing that when I die I go to heaven, I want to be like Jesus and take my place in this generation and be the man or woman that God's called me to be. I want to be a holy person. And I'm willing to ask and to seek and to knock and to humble my, do whatever it takes until what God has promised has come to pass in our lives. I was very despairing uh, maybe 20 years ago in this church. I was taking a motorcycle, motorcycle trip up and for some reason we were going through some little town in Georgia. I was with a friend of mine and we were driving up, I think, all the way to Canada. But, but I was... I was so discouraged, and there was a Baptist church, and we went through the square, and there was a Baptist church, and on the sign, they quoted the Psalms. They said, what he has promised, he will surely bring to pass. What he has promised, he has promised uh, to heal us, to transform us, to make us holy. He has promised far more than most of us have seen. And he is inviting us, that the church is inviting us on the fourth Sunday in Advent to take the risk of being disappointed. The devil always wants to say, but you'll be disappointed. And we've all been hurt in our lives. But with God and his word, we must, by faith, insist. We must require of God that he does what he promised to do. Meaning, we have no right to ask anything of God, except for God says, I'm looking for people that hear my word and hold on to it and won't give up on it. And the church is saying, we would not be the same people if we say we are pursuing God in whatever degree it takes to know him and the power of his resurrection. Uh, and nothing less than everything the Bible says will be enough for us. That's what the church has called us into. This isn't something, I mean, it's so funny. Raised on the Baptist church, we thought all the weird stuff, that's the Pentecostals or this is the, you know, we had all these boxes. Uh, if it's in the Bible, it's for me. And the most powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit is when he saves us and makes us holy. And all the other stuff, praise the Lord. I'm all for the healing, all that stuff. He does it, I've seen it. But he's longing to transform us and make us more and more like his son. Would you stand this way? I want to pray over you. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you and Lord, would you forgive us for coming with such little expectations? Lord, if nothing happened for a decade, we, we wouldn't be disappointed because our expectations are so low. We're not expecting to be touched in a sermon or in prayers or in the worship. We're, we're just here biding our time. Maybe we were hurt. Maybe we've got no excuse. However we got in this place, Lord, we're so sorry. Lord, how heartbreaking it would be for you to be here and be available to be present right here 
and for us to miss you because we're not really open. Lord, you say our responsibility is to ask and to seek and to knock. And you promise to answer and to pour out your spirit when we do. You don't tell if it's a week or a month or a year, but, but Lord, you promise. So Lord, we look at our marriages, our own lives, our lack of purpose, our boredom, our, the things that enslave us, our bondages, those that are known and those that are unknown. And, and, and Lord, we, we know we're not the best possible people we could be. And, and we look at this world and we know it's not either and, and our families. And, and, and Lord, we've sort of just gone along and twiddled our thumbs as if we're passive in this thing. And your word says you have not because you ask not. And, and, and Lord, we've not been asking, we've not been asking, seeking, and knocking like you tell us to. Lord, I pray for outrageous and unreasonable things. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts. No sermon could do it, but I pray by your spirit that you would stir our hearts in a holy discontentment that we would begin to long for what you promise. Lord, surely we want nothing less of being saved, and surely we want nothing less than being ministered to by your Spirit and the sacraments, but, but Lord, we want to be whole. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you help us? Lord, show us how we got here, and if, if not just push the restart, whatever you got to do, Lord, we turn and we acknowledge our sins and your grace and your goodness. And we confess our great need, and we don't deny it. So bless us and strengthen us in the most holy and wonderful name, the name of Jesus, and the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now listen, I want to do something weird this morning, more weird than normal. You can sit down. <laughs> it sounds so ridiculous in a way, but it sounds, it's, gonna be, it's easy. First of all, it's easy. Um, I want to take five minutes and long for Jesus. Does that sound crazy? As best you can. I mean, you may only make it five seconds. There's plenty of times I wouldn't have made it five seconds. But I want to I look at the clock or my watch because I can't see the clock very well, as you know. And I'm, we're going to take five minutes in silence just to long for Jesus. Not to pray I mean, you pray in your mind, but too long to allow the Holy Spirit to touch us that we might be able to long for Jesus. All right? Who's got a, who's got a, well, I can, I prefer uh, digital, but I'm smart enough to figure it out. Five minutes, just be still. Think about dinner. If you, you know, think, this guy's nuts, that's okay. Just think about dinner, whatever you want to, but for those who want to, let's, do our best that by the Spirit of God and the help that he would give us, that he would reset our heart and that we long for Jesus. Lord, we're so grateful that you say that those that put their hope in you will not be disappointed. And Lord, uh, this is your house, and, but Lord, we consciously and deliberately yield the rest of this service to you, and we, and we say, Lord, you are more than welcome to save us, to heal us, to deliver us, 
long before the prayer time. And we ask, Lord, that you'd feed us in this communion, that you'd strengthen us, and, and that, Lord, that we begin to long with a, a desire that would grow into a faith uh, that could receive your presence in a new and a fresh way, Lord, that would be transformative to us and for our city and our state and our nation, Lord. We ask for nothing less than the most unreasonable visit from heaven. We really need you, Jesus. Thank you for hearing us. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven.